Welcome to Emotional Sobriety. I'm here with Herb Kay and uh, Alan Berger, and we're excited to proceed uh, through the grapevine, which uh, as its primary theme was emotional sobriety. And we've got an article that we want to first read to you, and then we're going to parse it uh, with each of our thoughts. But before we get into all that, I just thought I'd uh, check in with Herb and Alan and see how you guys are doing. How's your emotional sobriety tonight? It's <laughs> a good question, Patrick. Um, uh, you know, I've been struggling with this chronic pain due to my left hip, but I just want to say something about what we're doing. You know, Herb and I started this about 15 years ago as these workshops on emotional sobriety. And, you know, at that time, I think we were lone rangers, Herb. I don't think anybody else was doing anything. And, and here we are 15 years later, the Berlin group has taken off in terms of they've got like three or four emotional sobriety meetings now. There's... Um, the whole, this, you know, the grapevine has issued two complete, you know, issues complete with stories from members about emotional sobriety and now dedicates this whole month's grapevine, January's grapevine to emotional sobriety. You know, we see workshops now popping up all over the place and in, in AA conferences and other conferences. We just did one with an OA conference, I think, out here on the East Coast, you and I presented it. And, you know, emotional sobriety is starting to reach the tipping point and becoming a, a part of the discussion and recovery, which is so exciting for me, and I'm sure for you as well. Well, it's, it's amazing that it actually took that long because Bill had the insight, as you made clear to me 15 or so years ago when we started talking about the letter that he wrote in 1956, published in the Grapevine in 1958, I believe. <clears throat> and, and Bill had the insight. He was about 20 years sober, and he, he, de he determined that abstinence from alcohol was really important. But that was the first and initial promise. And the real promise is the promise of uh, an ability to have a life that flourishes by living in steps 10, 11, and 12, which he made really clear in the big book. But it didn't really, he, he wasn't as clear because he didn't have the experience. And then in 1953, he published the 12 and 12. And of course, he had the experience by that time because the term emotional sobriety is peppered throughout the 12 and 12, as you point out in, in all of your work and studies. No, it's quite, it's quite interesting, isn't it? It just, it took a long time for it to, to really grab on. And, you know, I just, you know, I've had different ideas about what, what it takes. And maybe just our collective consciousness wasn't ready yet to look at, because to do the work, because... You know, it's it's a it's you really got to be willing to look at who you aren't if you're going to do this work on emotional sobriety, not just who you are, but who you aren't. And it's, you know, sometimes it can be quite challenging to face our immaturity and our childlike behavior and our childlike reactions when things don't go our way and throwing temper tantrums. I mean, all of this stuff after even years and years of recovery, you know, you and I have seen it. You know, we talked to guys at 15, 20 years and they're going, my God, how come I'm still so reactive to everything in my life? Well, the, the, the real problem from my standpoint, as I see it, and I, my, my vision is limited, but as I see it, is that people get satisfied 
with abstinence from alcohol or drugs or whatever their addiction is, that was the name of the game coming in. That was the suffering that brought them to a pretty radical methodology of transformation. I mean, self-review in the fourth and fifth step and radical forgiveness in the eighth and ninth step. I mean, who does that? And so they get real comfortable with doing that level of very sophisticated and, and transformative work. And they think, oh, now I'm sober and I can maintain my sober by going to meetings. And um, just recently, I've, I've really focused on what I call the best kept secrets in the room because I'm very aware that a lot of people do not really understand the whole concept of unmanageability and or the spiritual malady that uh, Bill was very clear on, although I think he was clearer academically than he was experientially in the big book. I think the tools of emotional sobriety, where it's really about a relationship with life, a relationship with myself, and a relationship with other people that sustained, broadened, and deepened with that improved consciousness that comes only if you have this daily practice of 10, 11, and 12. So I'm, I've written some uh, reflections and done some workshops on that best-kept secret about unmanageability. People think it's connected to addiction, and it is, of course, but once you're free from your addiction, that's when unmanageability gets really focused on in terms of our, our behavior. And as you said, our reactions to life and to myself and to other people. One thing I find very inspiring about emotional sobriety as a concept is that it demystifies addiction for me, or it's beginning to do that. Centering a reco my recovery more on the principles of emotional sobriety, I can address the uh, the issues underlying the addiction I have for so long. It's exciting. I've, there's always something for me to do. <laughs> well, that's for sure. One of the, uh, probably one of the catalysts, Alan, that you were talking about in terms of the, the timing of the awakening in this area and the need for it is the whole pathology of a victim culture that yeah. has arisen over the last 20, 30 years. That's so true. And, you know, that's that's part of it. I think the spiritual bypass was so prevalent, right, in the program. Just turn it over to God. And, and I love what you say about that. God's more like a GPS system rather than just turn it over to God. Well, but see, and, and even the way you're saying it, people are misquoting the actual step. The step says turn it over to the care of God. Right, And that's why the GPS is such a powerful analogy, because my GPS is not going to take care of me. It's going to, in fact, give me some guidance that for actions that I need to do. Yeah, no one's coming. I'm the one I'm waiting for. My GPS hates me. <laughs> well, then get a new GPS. We don't hate uh, you. It's familiar. It's, it's, it feels familiar. I'll be okay. <laughs> well, I'm not. I'm not uh, attached to your attachment to your suffering. Well, I'm not attached to the fact that you're not attached to my suffering either. <laughs> so neither of us need to go to Al-Anon. <laughs> no, we're oh, we're I, we're fine. We, 
<laughs> I don't know. I don't know how you're feeling, Tom, but you look good. It's great to see you. Uh, that's all. That's, that's all that matters. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, you're you are. Well, Tom, we're just about ready to dig into the next article in the the grapevine, okay. and it's called "It All Adds Up." And Patrick, you're going to read it again. Yes, I'll yeah. do the honors. I'll get us started. Yes. Okay, it all adds up from January 2024, um, the AA Grapevine. A member lovingly shares about the game of grief, change, faith, and love. I'm a terrible mathematician. I've struggled with math all my life. It's why I went into social work rather than becoming an accountant. Recently, I was working with a sponsee who brought up concerns over the way someone in the fellowship was being treated because they were different. As a sponsor, I don't give advice. Instead, I try to share my experience. I began to tell her the story of how I became friends with Ben. Ben was kind of a wild child in age, with long, shaggy hair from the 70s to prove it. Ben was a Vietnam combat veteran from a highly decorated unit and was an incredible uh, pinochle player. We often played partners. When I got sober, people in AA spent time playing cards after meetings, building friendship and fellowship. Pinochle is a game of strategy that uses lots of math. Strangely enough, I'm good at it, and so was Ben. Ben was sober quite a long time before Ben became Tina, and as she transitioned, Tina became an incredible, beautiful, and dignified woman. She shared her joy at the release of a lifetime of being trapped in a body that didn't seem to belong to her. Those of us AA members who witnessed her life-changing transformation were never quite sure that what that AA was prepared for Tina. But little by little, those of us who were fortunate enough to have been a part of her life understood completely that Tina was preparing AA for transformations within the fellowship that were yet to come. With work, honesty, and courage, our fellowship not only accepted but loved Tina. We shared her joy and her newfound freedom, and we did it with kindness, compassion, and love. Some AA members did not. Yes, I tell my sponsee, I have a lot of experience with people being different and how AA handles that. But as I was telling my sponsee this story, I started weeping. Tina had passed seven years before. She had lived a full sober life as literally a changed woman. She'd helped a lot of people. <laughs> Let me take a break. She'd helped a lot of people in AA, including me. At that moment, as a sponsor, I was a little embarrassed at my own lack of emotional control. Only my higher power knows why I hold on to my grief for so long and why my sadness and grief come out in waves, in waves usually at unexpected, even inconvenient times. I had no clue why she'd shed, I'd shed so few tears over Tina's passing back when it happened. I had no idea why that afternoon was going to be the day my emotions would come to the surface. I became acutely aware <clears throat> at that moment of how I have repeatedly buried my loss, sadness, and grief, and that I've often failed at sharing those losses with other people who might be struggling with these issues. While I believe I have faith, it's often a challenge in the relationship I have with my higher power to completely adjust to circumstances as they are, not as I want them to be. I cannot will the world to be how I want it to be. Ultimately, it becomes a matter of absolute trust in my higher power, not just faith, but a thorough intuitive understanding that things are exactly the way they're supposed to be in my life, in your life, everywhere, all the time. I've heard it said in our A rooms that a joy shared is multiplied and a sadness shared is divided. My grief becomes less heavy when I share my losses with others, regardless of timing and I become freer to enjoy and build upon the relationships I've experienced, both in and out of AA with people still here and those who moved along in their journey. It's been proven to me 
that a joy shared is indeed multiplied and a sadness shared is divided. That's mathematics, AA style. It's possible to multiply my joys by sharing these stories of mine with my fellows. And by the way, I still enjoy a friendly game of Pinochle every now and then. Well, there you go. Okay. Well, there's so many things that stand out in this. I'll take my first shot at it, and then you guys can jump in. You know, the first thing is that, you know, um, one of the things I became aware of as you were reading this story, Patrick, um, first of all, was your reaction to it. It seemed to touch you deeply, and so we want to open the door for that, for you to talk about that in a minute. But the other thing is that, you know, one of the things that she, she was doing throughout this thing was asking herself why questions. I don't know why I was feeling this. I don't know why I was feeling that. You know, at this point in time, I, I don't believe why questions are often very helpful. Um, because they're intellectual, right? They bring us into our head. And I think the, the more important questions is, what am I experiencing? And what does it mean to me, right? What meaning does this have? And, and it's funny that she was surprised that she's still experiencing grief. Because for me, when you lose someone that's important to you, grief is with you your whole life. Now, you may not be flooded by tears and sadness and, and break down into crying, but the fact that something touches you and you're reminded of that grief and that it moves you deeply, that's all a part of the grieving process. Right, all a part of it. So that's the first thing that stood out is that, you know, the grieving process goes on. So don't put any expectations on yourself that once you cry about it, you're over. You're not going to cry again. Nonsense. You're going to cry about it as long as you need to cry about it. Because every time you cry about it, you're going to integrate that loss and find, get back a part of yourself that was lost in the loss. Because when we invest ourselves in someone, you know, and they pass away, we lose a part of ourselves until we to bring it back by going through the grieving process. So that's the first thing I wanted to say. The second thing that stood out to me here, and, and this is the thing that I object to so strongly. In fact, I have a whole chapter on acceptance in my new book, The 12 Essential Insights, about acceptance and this idea that you hear it all the time, that this is the way things are supposed to be. Everything's exactly like it's supposed to be. Well, who decides that? I mean, where is it supposed to? I'd like to replace that instead of saying everything's the way it's supposed to be. Everything is as it is. Reality is only reality 100% of the time. Now, I think we, we make up these ideas that this is the way it's supposed to be to try to comfort ourselves somewhat with what's going on and to try to have an explanation for sometimes things that are just inexplicable. Like recently, I'm working with a, a um, this woman who lost her husband, and she has two grandchildren, and one of the grandchildren is adorable, nine-year-old little girl. All of a sudden, started getting sick, and she went into the hospital, and within two weeks, she passed away. Yeah. Now, is somebody going to say that's exactly the way it was supposed to be? No, it's not the way it's supposed to be. Unfortunately, she had an illness that the doctors did not diagnose correctly. They treated it improperly, and the treatment created an iatrogenic uh, reaction, which made the situation worse and worse, and eventually this poor little thing passed away. 
And by the way, what they're what they're going to say is God works in mysterious ways. Yeah, of course they do. But see, I don't know if we need to to invoke that. I, no, I'm <laughs> suggesting that's the wrong thing to say. No, I know. I mean, because you say that to somebody. I mean, I had somebody who lost a, a child to kidney cancer and went to meetings and they were just saying nothing happens in God's world by mistake. And she looks at the people saying, are you kidding me? And oh, my God. Why? What kind of God would want my ten-year-old, right, to be Either taken? He's, yes, it's a, cho a choice between incompetence and uh, and assholeism. Well, it's it's just a very ignorant man, in my opinion, in terms of when people say that. I understand they're probably trying to comfort someone and, and trying to help someone, but it's not helpful. So you know, in terms of emotional sobriety, I found it much better to look at reality as reality is going to happen as it happens. And our challenge is to deal with it, not try to, to explain it away, but to find a way to cope with it. I mean, I love one of the phrases you use, Herb, is that we gently lean into it, right? Into the pain, into the suffering. And there's always, if we lean into it in the right way, there's always wisdom to be found wisdom to be discovered in the work we do. I think people have um, totally, while I'm so excited about the fact that emotional sobriety is being talked about, we're still bringing in some ideas in it that I think are not as useful as some of the things like accepting life as it is and not putting a supposed to on it. Supposed to is a, is a kissing cousin of shoulds, right? Well, I mean, right. They, yeah. Man, well, and 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 I think I think you make a good point about uh, you know, and I, and I think it's a human condition that we're we're comforting ourselves. I mean, I think I think you know, if you, you asked, you said why, you know, you, you objected a little bit. I do too to the a lot of why questions because why questions are just trying to. We're looking for justification. You know, we're 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 very uncomfortable as human beings that our conscious mind does not understand what's going on. And the truth is, our conscious mind, far more often than not, does not know what's going on. And we, and when we think we do, we probably don't. And uh, I think one of the things about emotional sobriety, and, and and I don't think we have a corner on the market, but I think I think it, it, it probably falls in the category of wisdom, is understanding the, the, how how important and powerful acceptance is you know there's a uh, and i get the idea i know what they're trying to do when they say uh, everything's as it's supposed to be i have a i have a uh and i and i cannot remember the woman's name who said it this is not mine uh, i wish I, i'll try to remember and say it on the podcast later but there's a it it says it says act as if the hands you were dealt is the exact hand you wanted but see what what she's saying is act as if you know, and that's, you know, that's, that, that begins right now. This is what I've got, to, what acceptance I've got to work with. It's hard for that mother that lost her 10 year old, man. I got to tell right. you that. We've got to be in connection to reality to find the right response to it. And I think that we do, we've come up with justifications or explanations because we think that we can control it then. Well, if, and that I can control it, you know. Come on. I always say the wisest people I know are the people who are most comfortable with the three-word sentence. I don't know. 
you know, that they don't have to always know everything. And uh, and and I think our own humility needs to. We need to take a look at the fact that that when we are uncomfortable with that. I had a man in my office years ago who just lost his wife. It, she had died, and he was just tears rolling down his eyes. And he he looked up at me and he 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 gave me the greatest summary of of of, of uh, grief I ever heard. He looked up and in total total sincerity he said, "I am grief's bitch." You know. And we sat there for just a silent moment, and then I started laughing. He started laughing. We just we you know we just had a belly laugh about that, but not to not to deny it. It was just. It, we were laughing at just a total no control that any of us have over grief. I could be driving down the the road and and just all of a sudden somebody comes to mind, or uh, hell, my golden retriever can come to mind, and and that died years ago, and and I'm feeling that stuff, and that's the acceptance. That's what we're, we're feeling, what we feel, and we don't have to explain it. Well, that's part of the answer to the question Alan raised about the why question. It's a, it's a very important question um, in analytics, but it's not a very important question in emotions and living life. What is the much better approach? What is my experience? What is happening? What yeah. can I do uh, yeah. to get us grounded much more in reality? My wife of 52 years died five years ago, and I thought, being the spiritual giant that I am, it would take six months. <laughs> I knew about the grief process, and um, and it wasn't six months. It was two years, but I knew it was a process, um, and, and it was the moment of sadness, of the recognition of the permanence. Yeah. That was what the grief was, and, and it doesn't matter whether it's expected or, or a surprise. Um, uh, again, Alan talked about most people are very awkward with talking about God, about life, about fair, about supposed to. Um, and, and we have very awkward words to talk about these mysteries to try to explain um, Auschwitz, for instance, or the example that you talked about in terms of the nine or ten year old girl and it's it, it's as simple as biology and genetics it's as simple as this is reality and material reality is corrupt by nature yeah. it goes into integration disintegration reintegration that's the rhythm of life acceptance is literally just saying Reality just is what it is, and it's not what I make up, it's not what I want, it's not what I feel, it's not what I need, it's not what I expect, it's not what I try for necessarily, and that's the whole point of living in the now is if I'm not getting what I expected to get, then I need to change something, either yeah. the environment or change my actions or change my information. And one of the greatest experiences I had was in a workshop I was doing and talking about this with people and somebody from the back, a young man, just God bless him. He just jumped up with such enthusiasm. He said, Herb, Herb, I got it. I said, what? He said, 
reality is not personal. Mm -hmm. That was just a yeah. brilliant statement. Amen. Yeah. That's it powerful. just is. Hmm? Alan, you no, want to say? Because I, I think we take it personally. Exactly. You know, I, I remember when I had certain things happen to me. I, I think I even shared this with you, Herb, when we were told that there was a chance that Maddie could have this spinal atrophy right. problem. And I thought, is God punishing me? I'm taking yeah. it personally. I mean, God's up there and he's got a ledger and now Berger deserves to be punished. Right. Come on, not that important. I mean, but see that my ego made me that important, right? In that kind of a situation. And and you helped me say, Alan, it's not personal. Right. This is just something you got to deal with. So, you know, well, we, we well, yeah, but you it, talked about spiritual bypass a little earlier, Alan. There may be people that are not aware of the ter the uh, the terminology and or its implications why don't you mention that just a little bit well well a spiritual bypass is is where we use spiritual principles to avoid doing the work we need to do to deal with the pain and suffering that we've had it's like instead of let's say for example you've had a trauma in your childhood and then you go to your, you know, you go, maybe you go to a sponsor and they say, well, pray for that person. Well, that may be appropriate at time, but first you might need to beat the pillow for a while and get some of your anger out before you get to the part where you can forgive them. And you and I have experienced this. You can't jump over and just get to forgiveness. It's a process. And all of this stuff is involved in a process. The spiritual bypass moves us you know, bypasses that process and just moves us to a resolution that's really a pseudo resolution of the situation. Now, now the, 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 the powerful thing is, is that when we really work through these things is one of the things that happens, which is happening through our whole life, is we start to integrate the experience we have and we become wiser. Integration is what emotional sobriety is about. I'm more and more convinced about that, is that we are learning how to integrate the experiences we are having so that we can continue to mature and grow. And that process gets interfered with Herb, as you know. If I start shooting on myself, if I, if I spiritually bypass, I mean, there's all kinds of ways we can avoid growing up. I mean, Lord knows, look, I'm 71 and I'm still finding it, my path on it. Is, and I know you are. And we still see parts of us that, that are going, oh, my God, look at this, man. I still got some work to do over here. And that's great news. See, today I'm excited about that. You know, it's no longer I think I've let go of that idea that somehow we're going to figure this thing out and master it perfectly. There, there ain't no perfect here. You know, what we're going to be able to do is we're going to continue to grow along these spiritual lines, right? And we're going to make progress along that line. So, so that's, it's, the spiritual bypass was a very incredible insight that this one psychologist had. Well, and it's like, in, in the simplest of terms, I, 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 if I want to deal with my emotional pain, I'll go to a psychologist. <clears throat> if I want to deal with my broken leg, I don't go to a priest. I mean, that's the whole point is so many people, and we said it earlier, I'm not sure we were actually recording at the time, but um, so many people in the rooms, the 12-step rooms especially, 
they get way too spiritual in a very um, ignorant, <laughs> ignorant view of what God is. Oh, just yeah. turn it over to God. Well, that's not the phrase and that's not the wisdom of the big book. It nope. says we turn our will and our life over to the care of God. And they talk about full abandonment to the care of God. So we're talking about not we're not giving up responsibility. We're just saying, I'm in partnership with whatever this spirit is. And I'm, if I want to eat, I better work and get it by a hot dog. Because God's not going to deliver a hot dog. No. And the whole part of the culture today, the victim culture, the mentality of entitlement culture, and that's why I do believe that this emotional sobriety is now catching some traction because it's the antidote to this cultural infection that we have. Yeah. I wrote that down, Herb. That's good. God, God's not going to deliver a hot dog. I, I got that down. That's beautiful. I think that, I think that needs a bumper sticker. <laughs> That, that's what I'm, so, I'm so easily entertained. I know. <laughs> I've certainly made my contributions to the uh, victimhood culture, definitely when I was in active addiction. Um, and, you know, about grief, um, I, uh, I still get uncomfortable um, at my own tears and the grief of others. And I don't know what stupid thing some, some father figure or mother figure said to me when I was young, uh, that uh, I needed to be ashamed of uh, that kind of outpouring of emotion and run away from it. But I'm still kind of disentangling myself from that. But I can tell you that like the most kind of inspiring people that I've encountered these last few years have been those walking through grief and kind of letting the faucet come on and just letting themselves feel that and move through that without um, trying to clamp down on it. Because I think that's one way I look at my addiction was like a, a clamping down on the very natural emotions that I was feeling and, uh, you know, kind of trying to divert the the river in a way that was like uh, unhealthy and unnatural to me. Um, so uh, so anyway, that's one couple of things I took from um, the discussion tonight. tonight. And then also um, the uh, Grapevine article, I think, you know, I just in reading it, and not really fully understanding why I was reacting uh, the way it was while I was reading it is just the psychic wound that I've felt these last couple of years at how the trans community has been treated in the United States. And, um, and there's a kind of confirmation of a positive suspicion I was having in reading the article that the fellowship of recovery may, may be big enough to accommodate uh, those that are marginalized, um, you know, those that are kind of marked in society as lesser than, you know, in, in that group, we can, we can include immigrants, we can include, for the moment, we can include Palestinians, in my opinion. Um, and I want to bring as many people into the body as possible. Um, the framework through which I look at life that has been makes the most sense to me is a framework of recovery, a, a framework of addiction treatment. And to read a story about how, just about how that uh, community and fellowship was able to come through for somebody that in other uh, circumstances and circles might be shunned uh, was very moving. 
So that's kind of where I stand with tonight's story. Well, and, and part I'm of glad, the... I'm glad, yeah, I'm glad you brought us back to that part of the article as well in terms of how well differences are tolerated, right, in the fellowship and how people deal with that. Um, and your point is well taken, Patrick. I mean, there is, I think, some maturity taking place and there's a, a greater tolerance. Some meetings, there's no tolerance at all. I mean, I know this one men's group in, in Southern California, some of the single parent fathers had their little babies there or their young kids that they brought to a meeting because they didn't have anybody to babysit them. And they voted that they, sh they shouldn't bring them to meetings. And so that group split off. I mean, now I get it. I, you know, they want to focus and stuff like that. But at the same time, you know, you know, you know, what do we say? The hand for AA will always be there if somebody needs it. And, you know, what does that mean? Is that, a, is that conditional? Well, I don't read that as conditional. I mean that if a hand is going to be there in AA for anyone that needs it in anywhere or any place, no matter who they are, no matter what circumstances that they're under. Well, that's the that's, way I read it. That's probably a, a long discussion that has a, a many, many different points of view on it. Uh, at the same time, and I don't want to be cold, but don't make your problems my problems. Uh, yeah. You know, well, so that's what happened in that meeting. So, yeah. but, you know, but then where does it come that, that we support each other and help then, each other? Then you create a supportive system for that yeah. very reason. Right. Exactly. I'm going back though, to something that Patrick uh, implied and, and all each of you have talked about, and that's the control issue. I've suggested to people based on now my experience, that we do not have any control. I mean it with 100%. We do not have any control inside, outside of ourselves. And I abandoned the word. I don't use it. I try not to use it, especially with regard to the insight on the serenity prayer, is what can I influence? Yeah. What can I influence outside of me? What can I influence inside of me? So people have a very unrealistic view uh, because they haven't developed their consciousness sufficiently about reality. yeah, uh, And they have, as you mentioned, Alan, earlier, they have the shoulds and the fair and the, the mandates from stories that we have or we've been told and, and get reinforced in our environment. And right. it, it, it's a, it takes an awful lot of work to just face life as cold as it is it life doesn't have any it's immutable it's non-negotiable and it's our job to acknowledge what it is and to then accept it on it life's on life's terms that's the phrase right. but right. so many people don't really understand it and then we adjust to life life never adjusts to us i don't want to get uh, no. to imply that we have no uh, stance to take in, in what Patrick was talking about in terms of acceptance. Bill saw it right in the big book. He said, love and tolerance, that's our code. And to be all-inclusive and never exclusive. 
and yeah well so, and, and 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 i and i think we we have to make I mean, sometimes people will accuse me of just saying this oh you're just doing talking semantics but it's 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 not it's using language to to make to make some differentiations that are important i you talk about the control versus influence i use i talk about that a lot i uh i i use i'll say we don't control anything but we're in charge of of our decision making and that's that's the thing it's like and and really as corny as the as corny as the the metaphor is you know you don't if you're you know if, if you're not cheating then basically whatever cards are dealt you're dealt and 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 you can become a good card player and, uh, and I'm, if you're a better card player than I am, you can get worse hands dealt you all night long and you can still beat me at cards. And that's what we want to do. We want to we want to we want to become better at taking whatever it is and being in being in charge. And in what to what you're saying, Herb, of course, my experience is that when we accept life on life's terms, it becomes I mean, and I use the term loosely because it's not easy, but easier. You know, it's like because I'm not I'm not butting my head against brick walls. My short version of the serenity prayer I have on one of my little nutshells it just says a brick wall is a brick wall and my head hurts. <laughs> That's a good one. A brick wall is a brick wall. My head hurts. Right on. Well, good discussion, you guys. Good Love discussion. it. Thanks for being here, Herb. Yeah, it was great. Here. Thanks for inviting me yeah, to be here. It's always oh, a pleasure You're to welcome. kick it about. Um, there's so much that our different knowledge and experiences can bring to help people kind of wake up uh, with, and with the language. Each one of us uses different language, different vocabularies, different experiences, different metaphors, and people hear it differently. And so yeah. happy to be part of it. I'm so grateful that this was the article that uh, we happened to read. I'll be sure to include a link to it in the show notes. And I'm doubly grateful that we were all here to participate. Tinge your life. Tinge your myth. Cultivate your narrative.